17th of November 2019 and this is episode 122 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And how has your week in McClunky been, Rachel? <laughs> Damn you! I was literally waiting to use a McClunky joke. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, it's fine, it's fine. The moment has gone. McClunky all over the place. Yeah, yeah, McClunky, McClunky, McClunky. That's my McClunky joke. <laughs> there have been so many Star Wars highlights to this past week because there's just been so much going on. But yeah, of all the highlights, McClunky might be the best thing. W- would you like to explain <laughs> it to our dear listeners, Kirsty, in case they think we've gone mad? Oh, it's the best. <laughs> I, love, I love Star Wars. <laughs> and I love George Lucas. It's so good. So obviously this week was the launch of Disney Plus in the US anyway. Not over there, sorry. And people got a nice surprise because everyone was looking forward to The Mandalorian and like watching all the movies and all the cartoons newly available on the streaming service. But we did not know that George Lucas had made yet another edit to the infamous Han and Greedo scene. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, it's so funny. It is really funny. Oh, George. People should go watch it. I'm sure even if you don't have access to Disney Plus, I'm sure there are clips online. Um, basically that scene now uh, for some reason I don't think we've even had an official explanation of this or what it's supposed to mean but um, we now have Greedo with an extra line and a weird close up on his face um, saying McClunky (laughs) (laughs) that's what it sounds like anyway I think someone actually worked it out I think there is an explanation somewhere I saw a thread on Twitter um, that it was like her tease for something right um, okay but I, I don't know how accurate that is or whatever and you know what I'd rather not know I'd rather not have the mystery spoiled uh, I just want to hear Greedo say McClunky for no apparent reason <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing like <laughs> I, it just gives me visions of like is George Lucas at this very moment attempting to break into the vault where the like prints from film are stored so he can make even more edits to the Greedo scene. Oh, absolutely. He will never be happy with that scene. <laughs> he's, he's still working on it now, just for himself, no, not for anyone else. You know when he um, like sold, the, sold Lucasfilm to Disney and he said, oh, I'm going to work on lots of private projects <laughs> that people won't see? I think what he probably meant is I'm just going to work endlessly on the Han and Greedo scene from Star Wars. Ooh. <laughs> oh yeah. my god that's amazing yeah but <laughs> I, I think it goes without saying Kirsty, to move on slightly from the clunky <laughs> that this week has been a very rich week in Star Wars hasn't it would you like oh to give people a quick summary of everything that we've had in the last week where to start honestly well actually no we'll start with happy life day oh yeah happy life day everyone um <laughs> Hug your friends, hug your family. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy a day of peace and a day of harmony. Um, yeah, I feel like this week in Star Wars has been an all you can eat buffet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's been so much. Like, we'll try and get through it on the episode, but we've also, we haven't got all the time in the world. So, you know, we, we both read Resistance Reborn. Uh, we've got two episodes The Mandalorian. We love them both. Can't wait to discuss them. Uh, of course, there's Star Wars Resistance. 
Jedi Fallen Order. Uh, I was watching the cutscenes to that last night. It's a really interesting story. Um, and in between all of that, I also had time to watch Attack of the Clones. So getting, oh, wow. through, getting through the marathon. Um, but it's just been nonstop, hasn't it? Yeah. No, it's been a lot. Yeah, I kind of had a like detox from all the Star Wars. And I love Star Wars, don't get me wrong. But you do sometimes need to do non-Star Wars stuff. So I watched The Irishman today, which is a real contrast from The Mandalorian. Because The Mandalorian is against all odds, not this like gritty, grimdark drama. It's actually quite like a nice, optimistic, fairy tale-esque show, which we'll talk about in due course. That was the best so, surprise of the week. <laughs> yeah, I was so happy. <laughs> it was a massive relief. Um and yeah, so I love all this Star Wars. It's just a lot. And I think Kirsty and I both appreciate that it's only the beginning. Because yeah, I think everyone can feel the trembling beneath our shoes that the Rise of Skywalker promotion train is truly about to get running now, essentially. So yeah. Be either very excited or very afraid, depending on which angle you're approaching this from. <laughs> it's both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is that weird anticipation, isn't it? Um, so I think I've seen a lot of people this week say, oh, Tross who? It's all about the Mandalorian now. And I do, uh, as much as I love the Mandalorian, obviously I'm still incredibly excited for episode nine, but I get yeah. it because it's like, okay, let's focus on this thing we know is good or at least we're enjoying it for now. Yeah. Um, rather than like the anxiety of the last movie in the Skywalker saga, like that's a lot to process. Yeah. So let's just enjoy the stuff that's going on right now and then it'll be here before we know it yeah then we can spend months debating it and going back and forth and yeah oh no it'll unite the fan base (laughs) (laughs) oh there'll be no discourse (laughs) everyone will just agree that it was awesome and that will be the end of it Mm -hmm. yeah In a way, it's kind of fun to have there be so much drama around the Star Wars films. I, it would be nice if everyone loved them, but it's also interesting to have the debate and the discussion, as long as it's civil. And that's the problem. Well, that's, that often that is the civil. problem, yeah. it's yeah. There's debating and then there's debate me. Um, you know, misogyny and racism and all that lovely stuff thrown in there. Yeah, exactly. People who are basically convinced that they are absolutely correct at all costs and anyone who says anything different is definitely wrong and needs to be derided. And, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, just, uh, uh, yeah, maybe avoid social media for a week or two afterwards and just bask in the, in the loveliness, yeah. the glow of the, the conclusion of the Skywalker saga. Exactly. Okay, cool. So let's move in to what is sure to be a very epic show because of the quantity of the stuff we have to discuss so we'll try and offer quality as well as quantity i promise um yeah, yeah we'll so try f- <laughs> yes so we're going to mix things up a bit this time by talking about the mandalorian first rather than news because we do have a few quotes from magazines about the rise of skywalker but that's obviously not the lead for this week because everything's been mandalorian 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 so we will also lead with that so yeah we're just going to start off with like a general encapsulation of our views on it and also like some of the press that surrounded it so there was a really cool like q a of the cast and stuff that was shown on youtube um and yeah then we will move into more detailed thoughts about the episodes so yeah first reaction kirsty without spoilers to the first two episodes your general emotional response 
Well, actually, speaking of spoilers, the first thing I have to do is apologise because last week I actually inadvertently spoiled what was the build-up for episode one. Mm. Uh, not entirely because I didn't know what was going on entirely, but sure. I, I did spoil the baby thing. I'm really sorry if that, that impacted anyone's enjoyment of the show. That was yeah. not at all my intention. I've been feeling really guilty about that. So yeah, like, well, don't take all the guilt because I encourage you to do that. I vividly remember you asking me, "Oh, do you think this is okay to talk about?" And me saying something to the effect of, "Oh, yeah, it's fine. It won't be that big a deal." Well, it's kind of silly of us in hindsight because it. What was so strange, and of course now it makes sense, was that was nowhere to be seen in the marketing. Yeah. But but more than just that as a plot point. Um, the actual feel of the show is completely different to how they presented it in the lead up to it. Oh yeah. To the point where we were like, oh, don't know, don't know how we're going to feel about this show. I guess we'll give it a go. Mm. And now, you know, I'm not going to speak for you, but I love it. And the more I think about it, the more I fall in love with it. Yeah. Um, and I'm so excited to see the rest of it. Yeah. Um, is that is that how you feel too? I really like it. Like okay. I wouldn't quite <laughs> say love at this point. Um. But I really, really like it way more than I thought I was going to, to be honest. Mm, it's been yeah. a very pleasant surprise. And I think for me, I've been very encouraged, especially by how things are developing in episode two, because mm-hmm. I enjoyed episode one and thought it had lots of promise. But I think you can tell with that episode that Dave Filoni is new to directing live action. And parts of it really came across to me in the direction and just some of the construction of how that episode was done. And then with episode two, it was clearly directed by someone with way more experience than it showed. And I felt like I could really see the potential of the show coming out there. And yeah, I'm just really excited for where it's going to go next, essentially. Yeah, I think that's fair. And Dave Filoni would probably be the first person to say that, you know? Yeah, um, sure. He, he's green to live action. And that must be incredibly exciting. And I did think the first episode was very well done. Um but yeah, I think you're right. You can see the difference with the second episode. And I think the nature of the show, because they are having all of these different directors come in, we will see that from episode to episode. But I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but in general, I've been trying to pinpoint why I'm so in love with this show already. And I realized the other day it's because, for me, it's the perfect sweet spot between that grand, mythic, symbolic storytelling of the sequel trilogy and the delightful, goofy naffness of the holiday special. <laughs> yeah. uh, turns yeah. out that that spot right in the middle is my Star Wars. <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. Those montages, Kirsty. <laughs> the balance yeah. of, yeah, a super serious, like, you know, the kind of thing that Werner Herzog was, I don't know if you had a chance to watch the Q&A, but he was talking about how, and he's never even seen Star Wars before. He hasn't seen the movies, but just being involved with this series uh, has been, it's given him this uh, vocabulary to talk about Star Wars in terms of it being this modern mythology. Um, and he was comparing it to Greek mythology and other things you know, that he studied and that uh, we don't have that very often in today's world, you know? Um, yeah. So he was saying why it's so important and it definitely is to us. But the other side of the coin is the goofy silliness of Star Wars. And you absolutely got plenty of that with The Mandalorian, these first two episodes. And uh, they did that really well too. Yeah, no, that's very much 
one of the main reasons why I liked it so much because I really thought going in it was going to be very self-serious and self-important um, and I had visions of like I don't know gratuitous violence for the sake of violence and that sort of thing and there's none of that like yes there are violent scenes there's combat scenes for the Mandalorian etc etc as you'd expect given the nature of his profession but that isn't really the point basically the point is this like emotional story and yeah I was just very impressed yeah I mean for me as well like after the the Dark Crystal series this summer on Netflix if people haven't watched that please go watch it it's amazing um that had me dying for more expressive puppetry uh and you know Star Wars is known for that too obviously with Yoda so that that was kind of something that I didn't know to expect from this show but yeah it gave me it and it's like the answer to my prayers i'm so happy <laughs> yeah um, no, it's really awesome yeah so i'm well, obviously we're being full-on spoilery with well should we should we go into what that refers to or do you want to kind of talk more in general still um i think it's fine to go into specifics by episode now to be honest um so yeah obviously we've already alluded to some spoiler stuff but to be honest i think it would be impossible to be on social media for Star Wars in the last week and avoid like every anything really from the show yeah well um, I do feel bad because I mean Disney must have anticipated this they want to have what's in the story trending they've got all the media outlets talking about it but at the same time they can't release this show worldwide until March yeah so ooh, it's like this awkward yeah people are inevitably going to be spoiled yeah um, I, I had a friend at work in the last few days ask me oh have you got Disney plus yet um, and obviously it's not someone who's very closely connected to it because they didn't realise that it hadn't been released in the UK yet and I had to explain that and she was really surprised because, yeah, obviously news is so global and she had been seeing all these references to Disney+, Plus, Disney+, Plus, and had assumed we could get it here, but it's like, no, not yet. Yeah, March. it's a real shame because it is going to shape the way some people experience the show and I've even seen some people get so frustrated about it that they're saying they're not going to bother now oh Um, wow that's a shame yeah i mean they might change their mind but everyone deals with spoilers differently i guess yeah Um, no but i can understand that yeah and it's up to each individual hopefully they will change their mind though but yeah let's move on to talk about each episode so for episode one yeah this is obviously the opening episode and our introduction to the world of the mandalorian and what's going on um would you like to do it kind of sequentially, so like follow the episode from beginning to end and as just talk as... about the bits that jump out? I think as much as we can. Like we don't have it yeah. laid out here, plot by point by plot point, but I think maybe you can remember in general. So it starts yeah. out with like that cantina setting, right? Yeah. No, exactly. It's basically like a bar fight because the Mandalorian is hunting for this target who has obviously been marked for a bounty, and. Yeah, like it's just a nice fun action scene. And yeah, then it leads into the target of the bounty trying to wheedle his way out of it, essentially. Did that humour with that character work for you, Kirsty? Oh it did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I loved his little references to Life Day and we even got some puerile toilet humour in there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It immediately subverted my expectations for the show. Like you say, we kind of had this idea from the trailers and everything else that was kind of being put out there that it was going to be pretty serious, that it was all going to be about this lone badass. Um, And it is almost a deconstruction of that 
uh, yeah. which I really appreciate for obvious reasons. We appreciate the sequel trilogy for similar reasons. Um, but yeah, like I was even getting some mighty boosh vibes <laughs> from <laughs> all of these aliens. You know, it's so alien heavy. Um, yeah. There's far more aliens than humans in this show so far. Yeah, which does give it this real mythological feel, but it's also very goofy. It's very Muppets and puppets. And um, yeah, like I say, Mighty Boosh vibes with that alien like playing the flute, <laughs> you know, out on the ice and like, oh, you need to summon a speeder. <laughs> and yeah. It's all like, I'd, you know, they're out in the tundra. <laughs> yeah. No, I really did love that. So I guess that's basically a taxi rank isn't it yeah in star wars that's what, <laughs> that's a taxi what it rank was looks yeah. like <laughs> which yeah serious boosh vibes there uh it's mad and I, I was just loving it from from that moment yeah no, it's really great and you just get this idea of this forlorn forgotten corner of the galaxy where yeah they're feeling the ramifications of these wider galactic events but they're certainly not caught up in them so yeah it's really a cool way of exploring what's basically a fringe story so it feels connected to the big events the big galactic events that have happened with the fall of the empire and the emperor and everything but yeah it still feels like something fresh and different yeah it was a different take on where you your perception naturally is within star wars usually right so you know that this stuff is going on on the periphery we've, we've seen boba fett we're aware of bounty hunters but to actually get the focus on what these people's day-to-day is like is really cool. Um, yeah. And and it does require, like, a different... Obviously, we're familiar with that goofiness, too. But to have that be the main focus, it's really great. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like watching Snow White and the point of view is the huntsman, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah like i'm coming to it with like a fairy tale lens because i know it's obviously heavily western inspired i've seen some westerns but they're definitely not my area of expertise Mm. so i can recognize the very obvious tropes but for me stuff you know obviously with the bounty hunter and the baby it's the, the obvious comparisons are like snow white or a subversion of babes in the wood or even hansel and gretel something like that yeah this helpless little person (laughs) but yeah we will get to our precious baby Yoda in due course (laughs) right yeah so then after he's frozen this poor blue guy in carbonite long may he rest in peace etc etc he takes his bounties to his boss um, who is Grief Karga I believe I'm just thinking of all of them as their actors' names, so it's Carl Weathers, right? Yeah, Carl Weathers. Yeah, let's say he goes to meet Carl Weathers, um, who was really good, by the way. I think he captured that world weariness, and he had that, oh, what's the word, like that dramatic way that that sort of character bring, needs, essentially. Mm. So he seemed well-intentioned to me and like an ally, but he's the kind of character where I could see it going either way, essentially. Yeah. So, yeah. This part was really interesting because it's like, I mean, obviously it's more like setting the scene for post-Empire, but, you know, seeing like basic societal contracts, like money thrown into uncertainty, like the Imperial credit, he he rejects it because he's like, "Mm, the Empire's fallen. That's not good enough for me. Yeah. Um, Yeah, some interesting world building there. 
Yeah, no, it reminds me of when I was learning about the Great Depression at school and how like money became so meaningless that you'd need like a briefcase filled with $20 bills or something to buy a loaf of bread right. because money had lost value to such an extreme extent. And yeah, I think that's the vibe they're going for, that the economy's just messed up. And yeah, I guess the only things that are worth a damn are these tangibles like his armor, mm-hmm. which is obviously the one thing he doesn't want to part with. And yeah, then Cole Weathers gives the Mandalorian this assignment to actually earn a bigger payday than any of the regular bounties would give him. And that's what takes him to the best character, apart from the baby, in Mandalorian so far, who is Werner Herzog, who I think <laughs> I we all... His name. <laughs> yeah. I think it's we... Just Herzog. <laughs> just Werner Herzog. It sounds like it could be a Star's name, though. You know, I know oh, it's... Yeah. I know it's just like a German name, so Werner is probably quite a normal name in Germany. <laughs> but yeah, to me, it sounds like a good Star Wars name. Um, and yeah, because it's Herzog, it's just such a fantastic character. Just the way he says his lines, the way he behaves is just wonderfully, deliciously evil. And I like that it's going to be quite straightforward in terms of, yeah, there isn't going to be like torment or like being torn between the light and the dark with this guy. He's just a bad piece of work essentially. Mm-hmm. yeah this was actually okay controversial take sorry if this upsets people who don't like attack of the clones i do <laughs> i watched it this week so it's in my mind mm-hmm. uh but this was like the first thing aside from the obvious like masked fet visuals that uh it kind of reminded me of it he kind of looks like count dooku with the costume oh really that's wow. what kind of it reminded me of i've like i've never really seen any other characters in star wars dressed like that not just like a villainous dark but with that grand decoration around like you know like the jewelry um yeah just just these extra adornments it just gave me like a dooku vibe yeah that's a really cool observation different kind of character obviously also villainous but presumably not force sensitive yeah um doesn't seem to be the vibe here this is like the shady underworld uh, but it just kind of struck, struck for me. Yeah. No, Herzog is the sort of character where... <laughs> sorry, it's just a bit silly. Um, Herzog is the sort of character where I would love to know his history and his backstory. Because, yeah, he's obviously an older dude at the time of the events of The Mandalorian. And he clearly would have been alive in the Republic era and stuff. And I'm sure we'll get this in a novel or something eventually. But yeah, I'm sure he has a rich and storied history. Um, and in this scene where Werner Herzog and the Mandalorian are like thrashing out the deal and he's setting the task, basically, we also encounter this Doctor character who was a character I didn't know to expect because he hadn't been in any of the pre-release publicity. Did Were you surprised by that character as well? Were you like, ooh, this is new? Um, I couldn't remember if he was in that scene that played at Celebration, but we didn't actually get to see. Mm, yeah, I, don't, I can't remember that either. Yeah, because I thought it was this scene, but maybe it was just a version of it. Mm. But either way, yeah, he's wearing glasses, which I don't believe I've seen in Star Wars before. Yeah. Um, And has, like, the Imperial... Like, kind of like how they were wearing in Rogue One, the scientist lab coat, right? Yeah. And I've seen people observe on Twitter, actually, that he has um, a symbol on his costume that's the same symbol that's used on Kamino in Attack of the Clones. Yeah. yeah, so the clone fairies are ahoy. 
Uh, people love their clone fairies. Oh my but, god. Um, yeah, at this point, you're not. You're obviously not sure what they're after. Um, yes. But he's saying he wants the bounty hunter to bring whatever it is in alive. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that the idea? Yeah. I mean, we're getting the sense here that they're trying to study something for whatever reason, but it can't be a good reason because <laughs> evil empire. So, yes. So yeah, you get the sense that Babby is in danger. Yeah. No, and obviously Herzog, he has a much more mercenary view because he seems much less interested in keeping the creature alive essentially because there's a little bit of conflict between them where the doctor's basically panicked when Herzog implies ah it's fine if you bring it back dead well yeah so it's interesting because it's it makes you wonder like what would they be able to do with studying him her they um whether they're alive or not Mm. so is it is it for the force powers or like what's going on here is there a cloning aspect I kind of hope not but (laughs) Yeah, like I still have yet to be convinced by cloning in Star Wars. I know it was a big thing in the old EU, which I think is why people bring it up all the time, but it's always been a bit goofy to me. Mm. Well, jumping ahead, it's what kind of makes me wonder where where is the asset uh, in the sequel trilogy? Yeah. You know? So it's like, what is going on here? Yeah, this is obviously a very Force-sensitive creature, so, yeah, you'd presume it would have a role to play. At Luke Skywalker's Jedi Academy. <laughs> oh my <laughs> Turns God. out, one of the Knights of Ren. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Ben Solo and Baby Yoda were best friends. <laughs> okay. Yep, so basically the Mandalorian is told that his target is 50 years old, which obviously has certain connotations in our minds. <laughs> and um, he's given, like, very unusual means of finding the target um, because it's not this usual system where you get a holographic image and stuff so he can't see in advance what the target looks like which is significant because it's a baby yeah so this was done so well that even as I knew that that was or at least we'd had the rumour as I Mm. mentioned I spoiled it for people um, that we had this baby that he would eventually you know be protecting i didn't put it together that that's what this was because they were like oh yeah 50 year old bounty yeah so until the end when i saw the basket i was like oh yeah no it was a really clever switch then the next significant thing that happens is that the mandalorian before he goes out to find this target is he goes to this um mandalorian enclave on the planet where it seems like there's just lots of mandalorians chilling there and living and I want to ask for your expertise here, Kirsty. No, I don't have expertise. That's the thing. But you have watched the Clone Wars, right? Well, yeah, in parts, but I'm okay. not. I probably couldn't remember anything specifically about Mandalorian culture. What is it that you're wondering? Basically, I could have sworn I saw one scene where there were some young children running along with the helmets. Do you like little, oh, yeah, I think, little kids yeah. wear the helmets in Mandalorian culture? Yeah, yeah, people have mentioned that, yeah. It's just going to take some getting used to for me, okay? <laughs> I'm sure I'll get used to it. It just it looked a bit goofy. And this was what our, our first and only female character so far. Yes, right? correct. Yeah, that's not that's my only major gripe with these first two episodes. Um, that they're a major sausage fest. And oh yeah, 
And I, I think it's done intentionally. We know that Cara Dune by Gina Carano and Ming-Na Wen's character, they're coming. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's okay. Um, but most of the humanoid aliens seem to have been masculine presenting as well, if that makes yeah. sense. No, no, um, it's true. I know we had a Twi'lek in the, ca- in the trailer as well. So I have faith. But to me also, it kind of seems like an intentional part of storytelling to kind of have the missing feminine at the outset and then over time he connects with the baby and then we'll have female characters like he's making these connections outside of this initial perception of him as this lone gunman yeah there's a bit of a clueless dad vibe at the moment (laughs) it's like what is this thing perhaps what's most interesting about the scene with the mandalorian and the blacksmith is there's this conversation um between them and it was all a bit esoteric to me and i didn't quite i know i had to watch it a couple times yeah could you explain like for my benefit and the benefit of the listener (laughs) well she was talking about the purge right and that things are going back to and they they were talking about him being a foundling and everything Mm. did she mean the jedi purge i think so oh i don't actually know now you got me second guessing no so i definitely remember her talking about the purge i just wasn't sure which one I think it's supposed to be vague right now. I don't think we're supposed to have the answers. Yeah, like I, I don't think it was necessarily meant to be the most accessible scene in the world. Exactly. I, you know, both masked characters. I think there is this like, because you know, even in the Q and A, Dave Filoni and John Favreau were like, it's okay to watch this show without any understanding of what's come before. Like, yeah. Uh, it, everything that's necessary to be explained to you, it will be so. Uh, I think you're supposed to accept this, you know, on its own terms and just kind of not quite grasp everything at first. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think it's just setting the scene for, like, you know, the Beskar steel is incredibly valuable to these people. He accepts that as payment. And I think we'd also heard that the Mandalorian's armor would evolve through the series, and that's what's happening here, that it's so valuable to him that he would accept this as payment and then get a new piece of armor. Um, and that is his identity. Um, yes. Yeah, so the fact that he's masked is also very important right now. Yeah, no, that's right. So that comes up again in the next episode, the importance of the armour and how he won't be parted from it under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and critically, during the scene with the blacksmith, there is, in my opinion, a rather awkwardly conveyed flashback, but it's fine. It's still an interesting flashback, so I'm not going to be negative about it. Um, where basically it seems like we're watching the Mandalorian as a child with his parents and he gets hidden. Um, how did you respond to that, Kirsty? Um, well, like you say, I think it is a little awkwardly edited. I don't know exactly how to improve it. I don't have any specific pointers it just seemed like oh okay i see what they're doing here they're showing us um the connection of his past with how he will make his choices later on with the asset right yeah um but i i I just have to assume that we will come back to this at a later date right i mean yes i feel like there's there's more to say here um i think we've said before based on the footage that we got i think they showed this exact thing within the trailer and we were saying it kind of had like Jinnah, so in Rogue One vibes, you know, children being hidden, separated yeah. from their parents. And then of course you have this entire foundling culture. Um, and that's that's really key, it seems like, to um, the Mandalorian as a character and the choices that he's going to make. 
Yeah, so I was looking that up actually about Mandalorian culture, and they're not necessarily all from the same species, even are they? Because that's right. the whole point of the armor that it yeah. like levels them all out, so they're on mm-hmm. an equivalent status. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, which is a really nice touch. Yeah, I think that in general, and then also obviously the end scene um, with him choosing to take the baby alive. Um, it it kind of. I know that um, Pedro Pascal has spoken about John Favreau telling him to go away and watch a ton of samurai films, which is standard for Star Wars. And uh, bringing up Rashomon is hardly a, a controversial thing. I'm sure everyone has talked about it in relation to this episode because the obvious parallel is the woodcutter offering to take the baby in, right, yes. and restoring that faith in mankind for the priest. Um, that seems to be like the reference point for this episode. Yes. So and. Uh, yeah, a, a, a base point for what they're trying to say about the Mandalorian as a person. So, mm-hmm. Yep. No, it'll be interesting to see how they return to the whole idea of the flashback and that history because yeah, it seems very traumatic and it raises the inevitable question of who got the child out of the hole. Mm. So yeah, we will see. Yep, so then Mandalorian goes to yet another planet, which is where the target is to be found. And like I'm gonna brush over this a little bit, so we're already going long and we've got a lot still to say about the second <laughs> episode. Um and yeah, there's a big gunfight with a bunch of like nasty villainous aliens who I presume are either guarding the target or they're after it themselves. And then the Mandalorian teams up with IG eleven, who is a very funny droid. Um, and yeah then I will get to the final final bit of the episode shortly oh I missed all the Blurg stuff with the Ugnaught oh god yeah you're right (laughs) sorry sorry that was another thing that gave me major attack of the clone vibes him trying to ride that thing it was like (laughs) oh my god it's Anakin in the picnic scene (laughs) yes it's true oh my god I feel so bad for skipping no no it's fine um, I just love the Ugnaught. Nick Nolte is so great in that role. Yeah, uh, I obviously love him, but even more in the second episode, he's fantastic. But yeah, here you meet him, um, and yeah, he. What does he say to him? Like your ancestors tamed mythosaurs. Like this should be no problem for you. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it, it's another like goofy, really endearing aspect of the show that you have them interacting with these kind of creatures. Yeah, and then like trekking across the planet. <laughs> Yeah, and I also really appreciated that um, the Mandalorian was so polite with Nick Nolte's character. That was the first point in the episode where I was like, yeah, actually, I really like you. You're a good boy. Um, He is a good boy. So polite. And there's this real sense of honor between their their relationship is so wonderful. Yeah. You know, like such a mutual respect. Yeah. No, it was really nice. Um, And yeah, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Kirsty, about that whole subversion of the strong loner type that I think we all expected the show to be going into Mm -hmm. it because he is actually quite a gregarious friendly person and he's shown to at several points reach out and make these connections with other people like as we get towards the end of the second episode when he asks Nick Nolte's character to join him and yeah it's just really wholesome and I love him he's great yeah and I'm surprised, to be honest, by how effective I found that to be, because going into the show, one of my main f- misgivings 
was this idea that the main character was going to be masked all the time. I really didn't like that. But I think seeing it in action, it works way better. And I think it works because it's really used very deliberately and very thoughtfully to make some actual points, which, yeah, I really appreciate. Yeah, it is very deliberate. And I know it's not working for everyone. I've seen some people express frustration even after watching these episodes. Like, why does he have to be masked all the time mm. um i'm just hoping that when or if they choose to take it off that it makes that moment even more poignant because yeah. that's you know an important act of choice like we've it's been made clear to us that this armor and his helmet by extension is like part of his identity and that identity is being challenged by the events of the story in many ways you know like that just like us he's had this perception of himself as this loner who's just doing the job um, and being kind of almost dehumanized or disconnected in that sense anyway. Um, but that's that's being challenged now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. He's having that armor broken down. Can't resist. <laughs> um, yes. So then after the lovely encounter with Nick Nolte's character, who is lovely and the best, um, he then rides off to have the encounter that I described previously. <laughs> Um, where it's like the firefight and he teams up with IG-11. Did you like IG-11, Kirsty? Uh, I did not maybe as much as I hoped because I really do like Taika Waititi, but um, maybe we see this character again later on. But I was like, oh, a bit underwhelmed. Like I, I got that they were trying to make him funny, but he wasn't that funny to me. So Yeah, that's kind of how I felt. Like they obviously have the whole self-destruct thing going on with him, but... It wasn't as hilarious as they seemed to think it was. And I'm sure it was really hilarious for some people. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, just for me and clearly you, it wasn't quite well. Yeah, it was fine. I just like in these extensive shootout scenes, which I know they have to do if they're, you know, doing the whole Western thing. The pew pew parts are like the least interesting for me. Yeah. Uh, I got that they had to do it. And obviously in terms of serving the story, it's showing us how... I think Nick Nolte explains later on further, like, this has changed um, what's going on in in his valley, or whatever he calls it. Um, That there's such interest around this baby um, that it's become very dangerous for people. Yeah. Um, They really have to fight their way in there. Yeah. No, it's literally in this um, sort of, like, stronghold with, like, a pretty badass looking door <laughs> why did i just describe a door as badass oh my god <laughs> my favorite character in the mandalorian episode one is the door <laughs> oh do you remember in the last jedi when poe calls it the, the, the big ass door <laughs> yes exactly it's continuing a proud tradition of star wars doors <sighs> oh my god um but yeah, you're right. It's clearly just saying to us that it's all very chaotic surrounding this baby. Everyone wants a piece of it. And if you're going to take it into your custody, you're going to be in trouble. Which, mm-hmm. yeah, is forever emphasised in episode two. Um, and yeah, so the Mandalorian and ID-11 discover the baby at the same time. And ID-11 presumably is under orders from a different party. Yeah. Because ID-11 is under orders to kill it no questions mm-hmm. asked which is obviously different from what the mandalorian was told so i presume that's going to come up again later this idea of there being like other parties who just want this thing dead oh definitely because yeah you get the sense sorry again jumping forward but that th- th- he's not safe now that he has this uh he's going to be hunted down as well yeah 
Exactly. He's put himself in great peril. And yeah, that moment where the little baby is unveiled is just the most pure, pure thing. It's like Yoda himself is not really... He is kind of cute, but not in an immediately like, oh my god way. Whereas that baby is just 100% undiluted cuteness. (laughs) He's cute in a different way, I guess. I mean, prequel Yoda will continue to annoy me forever. Uh, talking about Empire or The Last Jedi Yoda here, but yeah, yeah like, you know, Yoda's a cute little green man, but he's old. Uh, yes. And then you've got you've got the adult too. <laughs> Everyone's favourite female Yoda species. <laughs> okay, well, I've seen so many people on Twitter acting really annoyed that people keep calling this baby Yoda, because like, it's not Yoda, this is set after The Return of the Jedi. It's like, we know, we do not have a species name for this alien species yet. Yeah. That is the only reason he's being called Yoda, okay? Yeah, no, I think people need to be really tolerant of that. And I hope they are going to be tolerant because throughout my notes, the term baby Yoda must appear like 50 I mean, times. What else are we supposed to call him? Or <laughs> The asset. Keep... The Sorry, creature. I actually, I should not be calling, I should not be saying him because we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely no gender know. has been established so far. So I really hope that, yeah, it's not a male yoda because we already have male yoda yeah give us a little yaddle instead (laughs) well yeah because as we'll get into turns out this baby is pretty strong with a force yeah although the whole idea that this baby is 50 years old and it's obviously still a baby it's not just small well, I wouldn't say baby because in the second episode you see them moving around. So yeah, it toddles toddler. and stuff. But yeah. yeah, like it makes like baby noises and stuff. It's still very, very young. And if you were to extrapolate age, so like say that fifty is like one to eighteen months in human years, for example, um, then Yoda is like nine hundred or something mm-hmm. like that in the original trilogy. So that would make Yoda basically a teenager. It depends adult. if they age faster at certain times. It does, but basically my head kind of means I now want to think of Yoda as a teenager, so I think that explains a great deal. It does, actually. Yeah. He's <laughs> just like taking the piss the whole time. But of course he is. <laughs> He's a teenager, no, carefree, no sense of responsibility. <laughs> Thinks he's right about everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh my god, that's amazing. It makes me want to see a baby Maz Kanata. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think there'd be lots of potential to make a baby Maz really cute. And then you could have like a webcomic or something where Baby Yoda and Baby Maz are like playmates. And... <laughs> oh, just yeah, it's Muppet Babies. Yeah. But yeah, this was a real lovely surprise and a pretty good hook, I thought. At the end of this episode, people are like, okay, I'm invested. Baby Yoda is adorable. I'm going to watch the second episode. Yeah, no, that's definitely how it worked with me because I was enjoying it, but it was in quite a uncommitted way. You know, I was just watching it quite casually, but then at the end, that immediately caught my attention and I was like, oh, wow, I like this. Yeah, and they reach out to touch each other. I know. So already there's that like instant connection. Um, It's so cute. Yeah, it's really, really well handled and just the way that, the creature is executed for the TV show. It's amazing. And I don't mean killed, by the way, that <laughs> happened. 
I mean, in terms of how it's visualized, because yeah, it's clearly some sort of puppet. But I think you were asking me, what Kirsty, weren't you? Whether it was puppet with CGI or just puppet or whatever. Yeah, I couldn't work it out because, again, like I said earlier, it was reminding me of the amazing level of detail and quality in the Dark Crystal series. Yeah, um, just incredible puppetry work. But I feel like there has to be some CG at work, right? Like, you know, why wouldn't you? You'd do both. So I'm guessing that's what's going on, but don't know enough. <laughs> I don't think they've even talked about it properly yet, have they? No, I don't think so. I'm sure we'll get information about that soon because it's the breakout star. Yes, no, definitely. They're, they should be doing the whole behind the scenes video because I think people would be fascinated to see how it's done. So it's mm. such a convincing effect. It looks completely flawless. So yeah, yeah. money well spent on this series. Um, Cool. So then episode two, should we move straight into that? I think so, because we've kind of already... that That's what deepens the connection between them. So yes. that's, that's what's so great about this episode. Yeah, no, exactly. So as we mentioned in the intro, this episode, it looks fantastic. And yeah, on oh, the music, we haven't talked about the music yet. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, so really need to praise that, because that's one of the things I've loved pretty much unconditionally since the beginning. Yeah. Because, yeah, I really appreciate how different it is from traditional styles music. There's very little Williams in the music for The Mandalorian. And I think it works really well because of that. Because it does just create its own musical language for the show. And, yeah, it's really effective. Yeah, the music has really stood out to me in both episodes, but maybe especially the second one. And they're releasing the music episode by episode. So I've been listening to it just by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just it really conjures things up well and like say it's totally different from what john williams does but it feels so right for this series yeah Um, yeah i've been really impressed with that yeah there's like a nice ethereal quality to it which was unexpected but yeah it just is perfect so i think i was expecting the show to be much more gritty and grounded than it actually is and this episode in particular really emphasizes that like mystical stuff and all the connections to the force which was a really lovely surprise i was not expecting that from this show especially so early in the show yeah definitely i feel like it's a sign of more to come and i also wonder what it might mean for episode nine yeah no it would be really cool if there's some tie-ins between the two of them like that so yeah to go through this episode um we start off with it being established how the mandalorian and the baby can coexist oh my and god it, it's so cute it's because there's a levitating crib <laughs> it's like okay kirstie as you're a mum, how much would you pay for a levitating crib so the baby I mean, could just follow you like that pretty cool <laughs> just travel around in the bassinet because <laughs> they love being in their car seats so yeah. you know if you've got that and it's always moving babies love movement so he seems pretty content yeah i kind of feel like they could probably paint in that as an idea and get some sort of scientist person to <laughs> engineer it and they would make an absolute fortune i think in 50 years time there's a real possibility the bit that really touched my heart actually was towards the end where uh the baby's sleeping yeah. and the mandalorian reaches over and touches the bassinet any person who's been a new parent will recognize that like checking on the sleeping incessantly yeah Yeah, they're still sleeping yeah phew (laughs) 
No, it's really lovely and you really see them develop a relationship over the course of this episode, which, yeah, it's really sweet. Yeah, because the baby, so this is where we see the baby is actually able to move on their own, um, getting out of the crib. And it looks like going over to the Mandalorian and trying to heal him. Yes. And then the Mandalorian not realizing what's going on because it comes up later that he and um, Ugnaught, is it, what's the Ugnaught's name? Is it like cool or something? Uh, let me look it's something up. like that but just Nick Nolte um, yeah just call it Nick Nolte <laughs> yeah there seems to be this disconnect or like lack of understanding about the force or what the force might look like when it's in action so yeah, yeah baby Yoda is trying to stand up and, and heal him and uh, <laughs> Mando's picking them up and putting them back in the crib over and over really yeah cute. so I guess he just thinks that it's the baby trying to escape <laughs> yeah it's the baby trying to escape it's the baby trying to annoy him trying to yeah. distract him in the way when, of small children yeah when when he's on the ship later and the baby like steps onto it and comes around the corner it's like obviously the mandalorian is masked so you're kind of inferring what's going on but you just like feel like he sighs it's like oh again <laughs> out of the bassinet again yes, can't you leave me in peace <laughs> yeah no it's so sweet and I also love the scene where the baby tries to heal the Mandalorian because that immediately tells you that this is a creature of pure intent. Yes. That it's out there to help, to heal, to assist. Which is what you'd expect. I I don't think anyone upon looking at that adorable creature would for a moment think it has sinister intentions. Um, of course not. But, <laughs> but, it, but it does show us that there's a, a mutual caring there. That, oh, you yeah. Know, it's not just the Mandalorian caring for the baby and not just because... The baby is the asset and valuable in that sense, but the baby is growing to care for him too. Yeah, exactly. Really lovely. Um, and yeah, we see force healing, and uh, the baby like levitates the. Well, we're really jumping around here, aren't we? But um, yeah, it just. I can't help but wonder what this could mean for episode nine, if anything, because mm. because we've even we, we've speculated that force healing could be in could be shown there in some form yeah so we've never seen it in a movie have we no but yeah it was obviously like a big element of the eu and well i guess leia to an extent heals herself or at least saves herself uh by using the force in episode eight that was pretty cool yeah that's true we've seen it just not in a really overt way Mm. um yeah so then after the early hijinks where we see the bond in with um, Mandalorian and Baby Yoda they encounter Jawas and the Jawas have been like disassembling the Mandalorian ship basically for scrap <laughs> um, in the way that they do because that's just their thing and there follows this really awesome action sequence where the Mandalorian is trying to climb onto their sand crawler and it ends badly <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's a really kick-ass action sequence while it lasts and i was impressed because i like basically action sequences they need to be really well done to draw me in you know and make me care and that one was very effective so it was so well executed it was it was really well put together it didn't go on for too long you could clearly follow what was happening yeah um, and yeah just this <laughs> uh repeated thing of the Mandalorian well obviously being competent he's good at his job but he's also getting beaten up an awful lot <laughs> yes <laughs> so yeah it's, uh, yeah it's no sweet. so there's lots of humbling of the Mandalorian basically across these two episodes and 
having him like fail a lot and be brought down to earth and yeah it's nice there's lots of yeah this guy isn't some indestructible badass he's vulnerable he's got flaws he's not great at everything yeah and, and he, he goes yeah. back to ugnaught then and you know asks for his help it's like can i i my ship is ruined i'm stranded here um and then he's like hey let's go and see the jawas and see what we can do yeah no and i you really get the feel don't you with this second episode that they've positioned the nick nolte character as this um like helper very much in the cambellian mode like it's just so perfectly fitting within the archetype yeah he's so endearing and honorable I just love and Ugnaughts are Ugnaughts we've like seen them before but his little piggy nose is just so cute <laughs> yeah no it's amazing and it's so totally convincing it it looks like practical makeup to me mm. um, perhaps augmented by CGI but if it is it's completely flawless because you wouldn't know yeah it almost makes you want to try it for like a cosplay like Twilight Zone style oh my god yes off the nose <laughs> <laughs> the pig people <laughs> But yeah, like I yeah, again he he's asking for help, which I think is like a key thing about this character. Um yeah. and Nick Nolte is happy to go and help. And then when he's talking to the Jawas, he's struggling to use their language, they're laughing at him. Um and then he's resorting to violence again, like sh- shoving the flames at them because he's so frustrated, like unable to express himself. Mhm. Um I do think there's a lot of interesting stuff being said here about that construct of masculinity. You know, the conversation about, like, you have to leave the weapons, well, they're my religion. Um, There's some really interesting stuff going on here. Yeah. No, definitely. And it makes me even more excited to see how the dynamics change when we actually start to see the more substantial female characters introduced as well, because I think that will intersect with that in some really deliberate ways. Well, definitely, because, you know, in this episode... Well, the Mandalorian is the only human, first of all. Everyone else is either an alien or what you consider an animal, maybe. Um, But the only discernible female creature we are seeing is this bull, or whatever you want to call it, um, that they then ask him to go and get the egg from. Mm. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, the, the imagery there is plain to see, right? Yeah. So... The idea is that he has... You've got this general mythic feeling with the bullfighting anyway. Um, which... Ugh, so the notion of killing an animal just for its egg turns the stomach a little, to be honest. But I think yeah. that's intentional. This idea of like attacking this female rhino, let's call it, um, in order to steal the egg. I feel like it symbolises this rejection of the feminine at the beginning of his journey. Yeah. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, but no, I, just... I think that's quite valid. And I think it's no accident that the um, crib that the baby's travelling in, that is also like an egg, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we have this idea of the egg that the Jawas want. They want it for food. So as soon as the Mandalorian gives it to them, they break it and they're like feasting on it, essentially. It's pretty devastating to kill yeah. the creature and then kill the egg and eat it. It's like, oh, okay, that's gone now. That's, yeah. that's the destruction of the feminine, quite literally. Yeah, exactly. And like, I don't know anything about episode three. I, I think there are spoilers out there, but I haven't read them. So this is purely either. my own speculation. From what I speculate, I think in episode three, Mandalorian is going to have to face a choice where whether he just gives the egg that contains baby Yoda 
over to people who will destroy it and break it apart in much the same way that the egg in episode two was destroyed and broken mm. apart and feasted upon or if he actually protects it and yeah i think that's a deliberate contrast i am right there with you i feel like that's very intentional and i feel like we're gonna we've seen this kind of parallel before it reminded me of ray with bb8 mm, um and yeah. Plutt asking her to trade him for the portions and she said no i think the mandalorian's gonna do it and then realize his mistake and then because i think he has to give yoda over so that we can see what they're actually planning yeah right exactly and then and then there'll be more to that i don't think that'll be the end of that story but uh, i think we have to get like the the other side of that coin where he agrees to the terms and then regrets it yeah and i think it's important to um point out as well that the mandalorian he is obviously doing all this bounty hunting work because he's getting paid for him but it's not purely selfish he's not seeking to like enrich himself and make himself a wealthy man it seems to be that he's looking out for the good of his whole communities in the mandalorian enclave on the planet because yeah he's clearly quite a civic-minded chap essentially (laughs) so yeah Uh, and again it's like the race situation as you pointed out with bb8 because she isn't just selling him to like make a quick buck she would have been selling him to like get herself food and get herself these resources that would really help her to live a better life so it could have made a significant difference and been really positive for her but yeah it's a situation where the hero is confronted with a difficult choice they're going to be negatively impacting themselves and potentially other people that they're close to but it's still the right choice so it's still the choice that needs to be made Mm -hmm. i think the Ugnaught's line at the end when he says, good luck with the child, may it survive and bring you a handsome reward. Mm. I, I think it's going to be... The, the the child is a handsome reward, it turns out. Yeah. But he's not going to necessarily <laughs> get there quickly. That's going to be the journey. Yeah. No, definitely. And yeah, so after the egg is returned and we've had that incredible display of power from Baby Yoda which seems to completely tucker the creature out because Aww. it goes flat out. It's, like, it's so cute. And yeah, you have that really fascinating conversation between the Mandalorian and Nick Nolte's character where they're both in wonderment, basically, at the powers of the creature. And mm. I found that conversation really fascinating because it sort of lays the groundwork for what these characters' baseline of knowledge is. And I think the answer to that is not very high. <laughs> Because they just don't know much about the Force. Yeah, they might be aware of it. But to see it in action is probably something different entirely. Yeah. And it could easily be a situation where they think it's a myth. Like many people do, like Han Solo once did. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. They may well have never seen it in operation before. And actually, no. They're unlikely to think it's a myth. Because they were... Well, the Mandalorian was definitely alive when the Jedi were in operation. So... I think that's pretty visible proof of the tangibility of the force <laughs> um. but even so like even while the jedi were i mean this is i don't depends where he spent an awful lot of his time but you get the sense out here that they're kind of on the outskirts of society um there's this idea sometimes that not everyone in the galaxy is aware of the jedi or what they can do mm, yeah so who knows exactly and 
yeah, I think over the next few episodes, we're probably going to see the Mandalorian get a crash course in what the Force means. And I almost wonder if they're going to have to bring in like another character that is knowledgeable in the Force and can explain aspects of it. Because I don't think that baby is going to be able to verbalise <laughs> what it's doing or what the Force is anytime soon. Although I might mm. be wrong. <laughs> no, probably not. I think that's the magic. Yeah. But yeah, and yeah, it's just a really great episode. It, in a way, I think you have to view this in episode one as a single story, essentially. I think you could easily edit these two into one episode and it would still be like an hour because the episodes are so short. Because, yeah, it's basically the quest and the resolution of the quest in terms of him finding the child and getting off planet. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, then I think we're really going to see the story shift gears in the next episode because, yeah, there's going to be face the music time. Yeah, I think it makes sense for them to have released these two within the same week. Um, but yeah, just like in general, I know we we do only have two episodes now, so it still almost feels like too early to tease out the themes. But to me, it just kind of seems like well, it's it's getting you to question like, okay, what is this saying? Because we've talked before about that subversion of what we thought the Mandalorian was going to be about. Um, what is this saying to an audience, especially a male audience who might identify with this character? Yeah. About the, the nature of responsibility, about caring for the next generation. To me, it does feel like the complement to Luke Skywalker's story within the sequel trilogy. Mm. That that mentor or parental figure um yeah figuring out his role yeah no, that's a really good observation so yeah like in terms of what's to come next like what are the things that you're most excited to see develop over the course of the season i'm very excited for the female characters yeah i absolutely fell in love with gina carano at the uh, q a she was in padme cosplay yes which it is was so good <laughs> the way to my heart and she was so enthusiastic and clearly so proud of the role and this character um and it's bryce dallas howard's episode that introduces her and bryce had a lot of say about you know the character and how she would be presented um so i'm really excited about that because as i said before that is like the issue with these first two episodes there are no female characters um which i i think is intentional to the story but it's still like you know you want you want to see them so yeah no definitely i'm really excited to see deborah chow's episodes mm. in particular because we know that they were so impressed by her that they gave her the whole series of the the whole obi-wan series to direct so yeah i'm really excited to see what got them excited basically to watch her episodes and be like oh wow yeah we want to give you this opportunity yeah before when I was thinking I was watching these episodes under the assumption that this was Tatooine that we were seeing now I know it's not but it Mm -hmm. still makes me wonder what the setting for the Kenobi series will be because if it is Tatooine it's obviously a very similar landscape similar aliens yeah how are they how are they going to distinguish that in a way that doesn't kind of inspire a little fatigue in the audience yeah no that's a really good point and yeah with um that Obi-Wan series, there's also this idea of him having the duty to Luke and like to what extent is he even free to go away other places besides Tatooine when he has that responsibility and we know that's a responsibility he takes incredibly seriously. 
So, yeah, all sorts to look forward to, basically, in the upcoming episodes of The Mandalorian. And, oh yeah, I'm also super excited for more Werner Herzog, because, yeah, just oh, yeah. all the Werner Herzog. I know that goes without saying, but, yeah. I feel like great. he's going to turn pretty nasty. He was trying to be a little pally with the Mandalorian, like, oh, I'm so sorry about your culture, I know how important this deal is to you, but... I think it's going to become clear that the Mandalorian is actually not okay with whatever they decide to do with Baby. Yes. Uh, I think things could get pretty pretty scary there. Yeah. Like, I have horrible visions in my mind of, like, the baby, like, getting upset and crying, like, when the Mandalorian tries to leave it behind. And, oh, no. Like, my heart is breaking a bit thinking about that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, that's very stressful already. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so really, really awesome episodes and I'm so happy to be able to feel excited for this show now because I felt I felt like I was wearying myself out when talking about it before it came out because I wanted to be more excited than I actually was you know because the way it was being promoted and the vibe I was getting from the advertising and the way it was being talked about none of it really excited me so yeah it's just this massive relief to actually be really on board with the show. Yeah, I'm interested to see if anyone at Lucasfilm addresses that at some point. Uh, maybe not until the series is over. But like we've said, like that, they're setting that up to then deconstruct it. Um, are they going to spell that out for people, or is it just going to left unsaid that you know what they presented at first is quite different from the overall vibe of the show? You know, people were thinking that this was going to be grim dark in some way. It's not at all. <laughs> yeah, no, it's super soft. <laughs> so. Super, super soft. <laughs> Um, okay awesome so let's move on now um, and basically we're going to go into a brief news section um, because there's have been a few magazines in the UK I believe there's Sci-Fi Now and Total Film and they've both had exclusives on the Rise of Skywalker and there's going to be many more magazine exclusives coming up I know Empire have already announced a second Rise of Skywalker special issue because yeah get that money empire get it while you can um and yeah there were just a few specific quotes that we wanted to talk about from these magazines because yeah interesting tidbits came out um yeah so the first one that we're going to talk about is this one from total film and so it's from daisy the whole of star wars is about good and evil with every character you see some struggle so, in a way, I don't think people will be shocked by Ray's arc. It's the most human thing to see someone struggle with two things within them that are pulling them both ways. If you understand why someone is going on the journey, you'll be on the journey regardless. So, hopefully, you'll be shocked in a fun way, but you're also emotionally with her. And, yeah, then there's a continuation of that, basically. It's fun because you get to do all of the human emotions rather than just, I'm a baddie, I'm a goodie. With the dark ray stuff, who knows what's happening there? You know, Daisy, come <laughs> on, you know. But that in particular was fun because even though I'm exploring the light and dark of Ray, there's a different vibe. She still looks like Ray. Dun dun dun. <laughs> so, yeah, what do you make of this quote, Kirsty? Well, I, I love it. This is a lot of the kind of thing that we're interested in when it comes to Star Wars, like she's talking about the struggle between good and evil, how often people are both, like you make good choices, you make bad choices um, there's always that temptation and the need to be better mm -hmm. um, and she's right, if you understand why someone's going on the journey, 
you're on the journey too. You can empathize with the character, you can relate to them, um, you know, even in their failures. So I'm really interested to see how this plays out. There's been a lot of fandom theorizing whether the Dark Ray thing is a vision or it's really Ray actually being tempted or falling briefly. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure, but the the way she's talking about it here, obviously she's being careful not to spoil anything. But like it sounds like there are real stakes here for Ray and what it means for her story. It's not necessarily just a case of someone else having a vision of Ray potentially falling. It means something for her. Yeah. So whether that's her seeing a vision of herself or it really happening in some capacity, um, I still think it's going to be important for the story. It's not like a throwaway thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we're going to see some sort of tangible slide towards the dark. And I don't mean in terms of her getting a red lightsaber and donning the black cloak and stuff. I I doubt that's literally going to be part of her journey because I just don't see there being enough time for her to go on a journey to that extent. But I think we're going to see like real moral murkiness, essentially, in Rey in this movie. And yeah, I think that is exciting because I think, as Daisy says, as long as we understand what takes her to those places and gets her to do perhaps questionable things, then I think we can be brought around to understanding that and going on that journey with her as presumably she would realise, oh crap, I came close to the dark side, I need to get myself out of here, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I also think that will be very important for some of the audience anyway, who are maybe more sceptical of Kylo and his potential redemption. Um, If you see that from Rey's perspective, it might change potentially how you see Kylo and his choices. Um, I was thinking that especially this week when we got the Rise of Kylo Ren variant covers, uh, the Charles Stull comics that's coming out soon. There's a variant cover of Jedi Padawan Ben Solo in his robes that look pretty much like what Rey wears. Yes. Um, so they're really being quite on the nose here about the yin-yang imagery of these characters. Now we have Dark Rey and we have Light Ben Solo. Um, yeah, I just I that's really lovely to see. Yeah, no, those magazine covers were a treat. <laughs> yeah, I, I, four years of that in fan art to see it made canon is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, there's also another really cool alternate cover where it's um, basically a Hamlet pose. Mm. And yeah, alas, poor Anakin, I knew thee well. That's the thing. We've seen that in both The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, and we've seen it on lots of merch as well. They've they've really gone to town with that as like a symbol yeah, that's for, true. for Kylo yeah. and his archetype. They're not subtle about that Hamlet vibe. (laughs) Um, Cool. Would you like to read out the other quote that we have about um, from Kelly? Yeah, so this is also from Total Film. People are going to find it really interesting how we sort of evolved, Tran says, of Finn and Rose. Unfortunately, oh, this is not a quote from her, by the way. This is the magazine. Um, Unfortunately, the romance and the character of Rose were not met with open arms by all areas of the Star Wars fandom leading to Tran receiving abuse online and leaving social media. If anything, this is going to sound crazy, that made this experience better, she says, reflecting on the past, because it taught me how to draw boundaries and how to protect myself and move forward. In a way, that was really, really empowering for myself. When you go into something like that, it is a very scary thing. And learning that I am totally confident and capable person, regardless of what anyone says about me, was a pretty cool discovery. Yeah. So 
there there are several things going on here. I think the most important thing, um, obviously, journalists are going to be, you know, they're going to write however they choose to, and we're in line with what the publication wants them to cover and focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say this is not the only time I've seen this. I've seen this a couple times. It's always disappointing to me when people talk about the reasons that Kelly was uh, harassed off of social media and they neglect to mention that actually it was pretty heavily misogynistic and racist abuse. Yeah. It wasn't just a case of someone disliking the character. And a lot of the time it's really evident that when people say they don't like Rose, they are being sexist and racist. Yeah. You know, there are people who maybe just don't like the character, but it's not an appropriate response ever when you dislike a character to go and harass the actress. Yeah. That's no. that's not why you're doing that, because you yeah. didn't like a character. That's yeah. not appropriate. That shouldn't need saying, but unfortunately it does need to be said, because yeah. it's not getting through. So. Right. Um, and the notion of people not like liking the romance and that being wild as well. Like, oh, I, I don't like her with Finn, so I'm going to go and harass the actress. Again, this should not be treated like a normal response. And I'm really glad for Kelly that she feels okay and that the experience has somehow taught her things. Like, I'm not going to take that away from her if that's how she feels. Yeah. And great that she's managed to take something positive away from it. But I don't like the way other people frame it as this thing where it's like, oh, yeah, people were just trolling. Yeah, it presents it as some sort of legitimate means of channeling dislike of a story direction or a character and no absolutely not the way she was treated was truly vile and there can be no justifying of that basically yeah in terms of what she says here at first with the quote about finn and ray rose sorry finn and rose evolving uh what do you think about that obviously she's having to be quite tight-lipped yeah i i think it's interesting so it it tells me that they're going to do something with it I don't know, obviously, if that means they're going to have evolved into a full-blown relationship. And obviously, we'll talk a bit more about what's covered in Resistance Reborn in relation to that. Um, But yeah, it tells me that it won't be ignored. And that pleases me because I'm pretty open-minded, basically, in terms of where they take those characters in their relationship, as long as they don't ignore what happened between them in The Last Jedi. I need to see some sort of resolution to that dynamic because I do think it's really critical and it was one of the main threads in The Last Jedi so as long as it's done justice to some extent even if it is quite quickly so obviously there's a lot that's going to need to be done in, in The Rise of Skywalker then I'm okay with it how about you? yeah I, I think I'm the same in that it has to be acknowledged like she kissed him and expressed her love and that has been like ex- uh acknowledged by other star wars sources since the movie itself like it's not just in the movie it's like if you go on starwars.com and look at the data bank it's like rose expresses her love and then becomes unconscious right that's what happens in the movie yeah Um, so it would be absolutely bizarre and make no sense for either character if in the rise of skywalker which is set sometime later but still for the general audience who doesn't read the books or anything to to then go into that movie and then for these characters to just act like nothing happened would be really weird. So I think you're right and that it says we're going to get something. Yeah. Which is somewhat reassuring. So I'm glad she said that, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And 
basically there were loads of quotes in these magazines so I recommend that people go and seek them out for themselves we won't go into everything because otherwise we'd be here for like three hours <laughs> and um, yeah a lot of them are things that we've covered before essentially so JJ made some nice comments about Leia and Carrie Fisher and how basically it was never even in his mind to recast the role or to recreate her in CGI which yeah we've heard it before but it's nice to see it reiterated and yeah just lots of good quotes so do read the interviews I think the only other thing that we haven't like read out a quote for directly but would kind of like to mention is that there was one question to Daisy I think in total film again where it was asking her is there one quote that encapsulates what happens with Rey in The Rise of Skywalker so asking for a quote from one of the previous movies essentially and what was Daisy's approximate response Kirsty? Oh the belonging you seek is not behind you it is ahead Nice. So, yeah. And, you know, even within that film, we've talked about that quote so many times because it really does lay things out for Rey. It's emphasizing that her future is not back on Jakku, where she's where she wants to return to because she wants to be reunited with her family. Maz also says, whoever you're waiting for, they're not coming back. You already know this. You need to go forward in your journey. And the belonging is ahead. And I think that's particularly interesting for Daisy to cite now because after the trailer... She she's talking about people keeps telling me that they know me, no one does. This is after she's been with the resistance for some time and she still feels like no one knows her and understands her, which kind of implies that her belonging and that end goal is not just with the resistance. Yes, exactly. So yeah, it's a really nice quote to pick out essentially because it is one of those quotes that really resonated with people from the beginning. And yeah, it just suggest something epic to the resolution of Ray's story and that's exciting yeah exactly what it's doing uh, Daisy can't really say anything but what she is saying here is that there's a lot more to Ray's journey in this last episode her character development is not over yes so she's going to be seriously challenged yeah exactly whatever her status quo at the start of the film is it's unlikely to be her status quo at the end of the film (laughs) well that's also something we talked about before because uh, to an extent when she has been pressed on things about where Ray's state of mind is in this film obviously she can only really comment on the beginning and she said things like oh yeah she thinks that Kylo's past redemption she's given up on him you know all this stuff that like that's her state of mind at the beginning she doesn't understand how someone like him could make the choices that he has when he had it all as she thinks yeah um, so that's also telling that that's how she is at the beginning of the story yeah so let's move into our next big discussion, which is of the new Star Wars novel, Resistance Reborn, by Rebecca Rowanhorse. So we have both read this novel, and Kirsty has prepared very detailed notes, which I'm very grateful for. I was literally going, Kirsty, to start adding my own notes, but then I realised that the quotes I was going to type up were quotes that you'd already singled out. So oh, really? I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, our brains work in the same way. Well, so I got kind of sloppy because these notes are just like as I was reading it and making little notes to myself. Um, Haven't had time to go back and edit things. So we'll try and keep the discussion focused. Yeah. Um, But yeah, obviously it's, it's, it's not like a quick, quick read, but it's also not. I mean, what is it, like 300 pages? You can get through it in a couple of days if you focus. Yeah. Or even I've seen people say that they could read it in a day. I was not able to do that, but 
I totally get that someone would be capable of that. Um, so there's quite a lot to cover. There are an awful lot of characters, which is actually one of my main issues with the novel. Yes. I enjoyed it, but there's just so much going on that it's really hard to get in depth with what is there. Yeah. Um, so it has its limitations, but otherwise I think it's a really good kind of primer on where things are at after The Last Jedi and then how you can see things get to where they're at in terms of The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, no, definitely. It gave a really clear picture of how the Resistance manages to rebuild, which I really appreciated. Um, Because, yeah, how do you go from just having a very small crew of people on the Millennium Falcon to having what's basically an army that is able to fight the First Order? That's quite a task to set the scene for that. And I think Resistance Reborn did a great job of demonstrating how that would be possible. Obviously, it doesn't go through the entire process because the events of this book are maybe like a week tops after The Last Jedi. And yeah, so it doesn't go through the full rebuilding process. But this, in combination with Black Spire, so I think that also has lots of interesting stuff to say about the rebuilding process. They're very informative and illuminating in that way which is nice mm-hmm. um i think i enjoyed this book but like i did have some issues with it and i think like as you said Kirsty, one of them was just the sheer quantity of characters because the truth is that i'm just more interested in some of the characters than others and i found a lot of the time in the book was spent with characters like um snap nora and wedge and stuff who i just wasn't particularly interested in and i did it's kind of sacrilegious i know obviously wedge is this huge fan favorite going back decades and even snap has become quite popular so he's quite a big deal in the poe comic etc but yeah just like regular resistance members they don't interest me a huge deal so i was a bit disappointed that there was very little say ray and finn in this book um but that's okay and i can understand why that is how it is because yeah those are the main characters in the films so of course we're gonna see less of them here because they want to sustain the mystery and stuff we actively have a few quotes that are about sustaining the mystery of those characters especially ray so yeah yeah i almost think that this book was given i don't want to say impossible tasks because she did succeed to some extent you know rebecca wrote a good novel here it's not it's not a disaster. Oh yeah, but I think she, she was almost given something too ambitious as a brief. I assume that what she was asked to do was tie in a lot of what the new EU, like all the books in the last few years, all that extra material, the comics, like you say, with Snap and the Aftermath trilogy and everything, and Bloodline as well. It's been asked to like bring all these threads together just before the last movie so that the trilogy feels a bit more tied together and connected with all of those other books that extra storyline yeah um which is really difficult to do you know if you're trying to focus on these film characters as well give poe this arc after the last jedi learning from his mistakes and it's like that there are clear themes at work here that i consider in line with what star wars means to me so Mm -hmm. that was encouraging to see there was a lot of heavy-handed talk about redemption people changing you know the course of their life being those choices that matter um introducing characters who were on the wrong side 
for a long time, ex-imperials, who are then still making somewhat morally dubious decisions, but they're making them for the resistance now. So I guess it's okay. That was kind of interesting to explore. Yes, definitely. Um, but overall, I, I almost think it had too much um, heaped on it in terms of tying up all of these things, including so many Easter eggs. I'm sure that was very rewarding for lots of people to read, to recognize characters, to bring them all together in this way. But I think it distracted from what the story actually was. Yeah. No, I think that's very true. So I got the sense when reading it that I think this is referencing some part of the EU that I haven't had a chance to read. That's the thing. If you haven't read all of it, some of it's going to resonate more than others. So I know you've read Bloodline. Yeah. So Ransom is obviously a character that you recognize. You know his importance to Leia. Yes. But someone like Nora, or like you say, Snap, or whatever, like that's... It's like, okay... Uh, I guess I'll read about these characters, but they don't really mean anything to me. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, the parts with Ransom, that was quite poignant. Because, yeah, I had the background for that character and his relationship with Leia. But I think some of the pilots and stuff, maybe, were characters from comics or video games. And I was like, I don't know who this person is. I'm not engaged in you. I don't particularly care. Yeah. <laughs> and, or even... and that's harsh, you know. But, yeah, it's just how I felt. Or Zay Versio, you know, she's the daughter of Aiden Versio and Delmico from Battlefront, or if you've read um, Inferno Squadron, which I haven't, I've I've watched the cutscenes of Battlefront, I'm familiar with those characters and Zay being referenced, but um, yeah, it's like, it is an Easter egg for people, and uh, Easter eggs in general, like, as a thing, I don't know, it's not necessarily the fault of writers or like franchises like this themselves it's like the way fandom almost fetishizes them or like you know the whole the whole youtube video culture of like cinema sins and oh catch the easter eggs in this as if that's the point yeah and i never think it is or it shouldn't be so to me it's just like oh i see what they're doing there and it kind of takes me out of it a little bit yeah i thought actually zay actually what they were showing with that character uh, was quite interesting and I think relevant to the sequel trilogy um, and the Battlefront story is too with these characters being on the Empire side and then defecting and then Zay figuring out um, her role within the Resistance and knowing where her parents came from but then wondering if she's welcome here and Leia welcoming her with open arms and yeah. um, and saying people were complicated and if there was one thing the empire had been good at it was offering people what they thought they needed she had enough demons in her family tree to guarantee she was not one to judge so that's pretty explicitly connecting what leia perceives of zay and her choices now and um you know people like vader and ben solo in her life uh you know the dark side the empire offering people what they think they need um but hopefully coming back around and not being judgmental of people while they're on that journey. Yeah, no, which is really beautiful, and I appreciated that. I think my only, the only thought I had at the back of my mind when I was reading that passage in particular was how many of these people like know, and maybe all of them know, I'm not sure, that Leia is the mother of the new supreme leader, because obviously the link to Vader comes up, and that seems very much in the open at this point. But it's just not brought up, the whole connection to Kylo Ren and the fact he's Supreme Leader now. Well, it is with Rey. It is with Rey, 
but not to the rest of the resistance when they're having a conversation where that would be quite relevant you know <laughs> and, and again this isn't fair it's because it would have been outside of the remit of the book and I'm sure that's the sort of thing that they just don't want to go into you know because who knows what JJ wants to do with that sort yeah of thing. I think that is what it comes back to that this is kind of the issue with Star Wars books they really have to tiptoe around stuff and when you can see it within the story like oh that's the reason they've made that choice to omit that from the discussion it does take you out of it because then you're looking at like the mechanics of the story and how these books fit with the movie rather than just being immersed in it do you know do you know what i mean yeah so it's a real shame and it's not the fault of this novel because like i said i enjoyed it i think she did a great job but i think just over the course of this year reading more and more of the star wars books i've become a little jaded with them like yeah I don't know. I think I'm going to be a lot more selective going forward with what I choose to read. Yeah, same. Um, Because they do kind of have an impossible task. They have to tiptoe around the important stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. No, exactly. And it's so hard. I'm hoping that after The Rise of Skywalker comes out and the story is fully told, then we will get like richer and more meaningful stories in the books. Um, But yeah that obviously remains to be seen because who knows how they'll approach it and whether they'll actually stick to their promise of episode 9 being the last saga film because if that is the case and I imagine they'll want to be very hush hush on what happens next so to speak which I'd support so I'd rather get those stories in film rather than in books to be honest but yeah yeah one of the things that I did appreciate was getting some stuff from Leia's perspective about the events of The Last Jedi particularly her near-death experience yeah that was really um, cool so that's pretty early on. I think it's on page eight. She's on the Falcon, reflecting on all of those dangerous times in her life, you know, gallivanting around the galaxy with Han Solo, uh, being young and putting themselves in danger. Um, and how since almost dying out there in space, she's become quite morbid. And mm. I'm always appreciative when people let Leia reflect on how much she's suffered and lost in her life because she doesn't always get to do that. Yeah. Especially not in the movies. So we get a brief period of her mourning in silence in The Last Jedi, where she's just by herself with her head bowed. Um, but there's really so little of her. Yeah. No, definitely. I really appreciated those early passages. And I think I remember like, messaging you and saying, oh my God, I'm loving this book. And I think that's because there's so much of that early on. There's a lot of introspection from Leia and there's that really great conversation between Leia and Rey that I think we've spoken about previously. Um, where they're talking about Ben Solo and hope is good and stuff and all that good stuff, essentially. Yeah, like there's obviously much less of that as the book goes on and Leia and especially Ray very much fade into the background and it's much more of a Poe book and a book about the pilots and stuff. And that's fine because that's what it is. And on the cover, it's not particularly false advertising. It is a huge, huge image of Poe's head. So it's telling us that he will be the most important one. But yeah, I think that's just why I was a little bit, oh, as it went along. Yeah, I think they get away with the lack of Ray by emphasising that that's due to the fact that the po- the book is mostly from Poe's perspective. Yeah. And to Poe, Ray is something of an enigma. And I think that is something that's going to tie in with The Rise of Skywalker pretty well, based on what we've heard so far and what we could infer from The Last Jedi, let's be honest. Um, yeah. I think... And it's actually spelled out quite explicitly at times where he's just like, I don't know what to make of Ray. <laughs> I know yeah. she's Finn's friend, so I care about her because I care about Finn. But Ray herself kind of keeps to herself. She doesn't tell me what she's thinking. Um, towards, I think it's right at the end, 
uh, he's asking Finn to go on a mission with him, which presumably ties in with the Rise of Skywalker, although who knows, because we're still kind of far out from it in the timeline. And Rey hears and says, can I come too? And he's surprised by it because he's like, well, I didn't think she'd want to be around me. (laughs) So it really is quite a... It's carefully setting up their dynamic in an interesting way, but unfortunately that does translate into lack of Rey, who's our fave, so... Yeah. No, exactly. Um, It also reminds me of some of the stuff you were saying about Spark of Resistance, which I haven't read, but you have, um, with the whole uneasiness between Poe and Rey. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think Spark of Resistance happens after the events of this book? I think it has to be just based on their comfort level of each other, because this one, they're almost strangers, you know? Yeah. Like he's, he walks in on a conversation with her and Finn and Ray stops talking because she's not comfortable sharing whatever it was in front of him. And then Finn kind of fills him in and like, oh yeah, I've told her to go and talk to Leia about it, but he won't tell her, him what it is. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's told, it's kind of indicated later on um, that Ray felt something in the Force, but it was like this weird indefinable feeling and it turns out that it was because the First Order was coming to attack them. I yes. think that's what it was. But at first, when I was reading that, I was like, is this related to her connection, her force bond with the Supreme Leader? Yeah, that's um, what I was thinking as yeah, well. And I was like, no. oh, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> we know that she did go and talk to Leia about Ben, not specifically the force bond, but it was kind of suggested. Um, so, yeah, it's just this idea that so much of Ray is inaccessible to Poe because he's set apart from her Um not just like interpersonal wise, but like the force, you know, it, it separates her from the rest of the resistance. And that's something that Daisy's referenced, they've referenced in the trailer. So it, it there's a reason for it. It's just frustrating. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and there's a bunch of new characters in this book. So the villain, such as there is a villain in this book, Ugh. is this um, bureaucrat um, whose name I'm trying to find. Is the name Brat? Winsha. Yeah, Winsha Brat. Yeah, Winchabrat, exactly. Um, so yeah, the villain is this bureaucrat called Winchabrat, who is essentially trying to ingratiate himself with the First Order, and he has these two people serving below him. And yeah, there's this awful sinister dynamic, basically, with his subordinates, especially the girl called Yama, and... Yeah, I found that really interesting. It escalated dramatically in the final act of the book, um, which took me aback a little because Pratt is basically presented in a way that at the outset you don't think of him as much of a threat. He seems quite harmless and just a bit of like a snivelling little rat-faced git, essentially. But yeah, as it goes on, you realise that he is dangerous because he has all these like hang-ups and inadequacies and stuff. Yeah, what did you make of that character? Oh, he's vile. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously meant to be. He's almost like a hook stand-in, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what he does to Yama, the way that these things are described actually quite surprised me. They were quite sickening. Mm. I'm a squeamish person, so my, my threshold will be different from other people's. But reading what he did to her and then what happened to him as a consequence of that with, what's her name? Is it Tassanez? Oh, I think so. The ex-imperial character who's clearly like, oh God, this this woman has done some shit, you know? Yes, um, yeah. Which, she was an interesting character, not so much like we didn't see anything from her perspective, but what she gave to our understanding of the resistance in terms of them being so desperate for people um, 
that they'll take on someone that they're really not quite sure about and is actually still content to kill without remorse um but she's doing it for the right side now so i guess it doesn't matter uh i don't know i again i'm not sure if that will be explored as a theme in the rise of skywalker because it brings this like moral queasiness to it that i don't know if they'll have time for yeah uh, especially in the third actress i mean they they explore that stuff to an extent with dj and finn's storyline in the last jedi but um yeah the way she kills winsher at the end and to be fair she does warn him that that's what she's gonna do yeah <laughs> she's like you can either apologize and um be given the beating or i will kill you right now and he <laughs>, laughs at her or mocks her in some way doesn't take her seriously and she just goes for it and yeah. the way it's described like he sat there with a hole in his stomach and he's on his side like you you experience him dying basically the way that they describe it like his um he's losing his understanding of what's happening around him then someone like touches him and he thinks it's ransom but he's not sure he's just saying leave me oh it just it really got to me <laughs> i was like not that i sympathize with this character just it it almost felt like weirdly brutal for star wars yeah no i know what you mean it was really grim basically and yeah i think it was just the contrast between that and the rest of the novel which wasn't particularly explicit in its descriptions of anything so yeah i mean the rest of it there was often like this almost and i don't mean this disparagingly but it almost had this like fan fiction thing to me maybe i've read so much fan fiction in the sequel trilogy era that it was like ticking off these things that people love to see in like the relative downtime for these characters like finn trying all these new foods and rushing over to Poe excitedly and saying you've got to try this and like them drinking all these different cocktails and stuff going to parties undercover yeah um finn and poe having conversations about whether he feels romantically about ray and rose Mm, yes it had this kind of fan fiction feel to me oh yeah no definitely i think you could tell reading it that the author is quite a fan of finn poe nothing wrong with that um and yeah i remember as well there was a scene where poe was helping finn like put on a tie and stuff and showing Mm -hmm finn how his own father taught him how to put on a tie um which to be fair you could equally interpret that as like a paternalistic thing you know he's like helping him as a dad would because finn never knew his father which is nice but yeah like i definitely got shippy vibes from it yeah and just some of the phrasing again it's because i've probably read way too much fan fiction myself but like i noticed there was some repeated phrasing um jessica parva and finn both flushed and rubbed self-consciously at their neck mm, that's like yeah. the exact the exact same sentence is used to describe both of them in these different situations when yeah. they're talking to Pearl. uh and it just it it gave me like this little vibe that i'm like oh this this writer definitely either writes fanfic of her own or reads it there are <laughs> cer- certain phrases and tropes you see a lot in fan fiction yeah no, I, I totally got that vibe as well. I saw that you wrote it in your notes and it's something I noticed as well. But in the early chapter where Snap and his wife go to find and recruit Nora and Wedge, there's so much redundancy in that chapter in particular in terms of just like repeated mentions of the fact that this character is Snap's wife and that Nora is Snap's mother and that Nora and Wedge are married and stuff. And it's like, yeah, we get it. You don't need to keep saying 
Yeah, I wondered again if that was kind of what we were talking about earlier, the limitations of having to bring in all of these different threads and being aware that not every fan will have read every book or read every yeah. comic. So having to introduce people and it just feeling a little artificial because of that. No, I think that's probably the most likely explanation. Was it um, clarified prior to this book that Wedge and Nora were married or romantically involved? Yeah, I knew that they were a romantic couple. but Right. I- yeah, I wasn't sure that they were like married. And also, there's a really touching part towards the end, actually, where Snap calls Wedge dad. Yeah, I liked that. Obviously, we learn in Aftermath, the trilogy, what happened to Snap's biological father. Horrible. Um, but yeah, I think this was a real nice moment for people reading, for, for me at least, uh, with, with step families. So that was touching. Yeah. No, it was really good. And um, yeah, I also like how they closed out the story with um, Wedge and Nora, where they just let them go off and be pilots again, rather than like stick into the resistance. What did you think? It it seemed like kind of odd to me after all of the build up with Wedge kind of and and Nora kind of itching to get back into it as well, but also being comfortable with their life and giving up so much. There, they gave up their home that they had built a life you know around for years yeah um and been so comfortable you know he was in his robe they had the chickens or like it was like they they really set that scene they were comfortable and then they had to abandon it for this mission and i really thought that was them being then all in with the resistance right and, yeah and then towards the end they're like actually no we've decided this isn't for us it's like oh okay <laughs> yeah no i can see that I don't know. There are all these different threads. I mean, we even have Mars in there at one point. Oh, in God, In a bizarre yeah. scene at a spa where she's literally smearing... She's putting cat poo on her face. And I did not just make that up. Yeah. No, I was really hoping that you'd read out that part of your notes, so I didn't have to. <laughs> and then she's asking Poe if he wants to do drugs with her. I mean, I know this is like... It's Mars, so whatever. You can kind of do whatever you want with that character. Yeah. But But the big thing to me is that Poe is here trying to convince Mars to join the Resistance. It's very odd to me because last time we saw Mars, we did see her in The Last Jedi, she was helping out a little, but in The Force Awakens Mars is the one convincing Han, Rey and Finn that they have to face the First Order and fight, and emphasising it's the only fight that matters. And here, she's like, oh, I'm not helping because the last time I worked with the Resistance the First Order destroyed my castle and I shouldn't have stuck my neck out. And that's the lesson that she took away from that. Um... At least it's what she says to Poe. Maybe she's testing him because she knows he screwed up in The Last Jedi. Yeah. And there is a long conversation about that and Poe really has to face the music. Yeah. Um, and and repeatedly, you know, he's really quite hard on himself and he does address it with several different characters. Yeah. It kind of surprised me um, how they handled Maz in the book because, yeah, she did not seem to be interested in helping whatsoever. And at mm. first I thought it had to be a fake out and that there was going to be a moment where she like turned up and was like, actually, I've been doing all this work for you to recruit. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess she was. <laughs> so, yeah, I was slightly disappointed in her. It might turn out to be the case when we get to the Rise of Skywalker. We know she- we know Lupita's in the movie, right? Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> It'd be funny if there's just a scene in there where it's just like a repeat of what happened in Resistance Reborn. It was like, oh, we're desperate for help. Let's ask Maz. It's like, go away. I don't want to help you. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> mm, yeah. It'd be pretty grim. 
but yeah, to go back quickly to what you were saying about Pozark, I, I agree. I think that was one of the stronger elements of the book and I really appreciated how they were so upfront with diving into that mentality that he has after the events of The Last Jedi and how people actually challenge him about Holdo's death and the fact that he was basically the cause of that because mm-hmm. it was his mistakes that led to her having to make that sacrifice. And yeah, I think the novel did a really good job of making his like pain and regret over that really clear. Definitely. And I think he it even shows that he feels guilt while talking to Rose because he knows that he's responsible for Paige's death, um, which is not something that comes across in the movie. Yeah. Talks to Rose about the mission and there's no connection with Paige, which seems kind of strange. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of people including us probably at some point, like pointed out that even within The Last Jedi, yes, Poe learns the lesson, but it's not... His guilt isn't really addressed in, at the end of that movie. Um, which he probably could have done. There could have been a passing line about him realising the impact of what he'd done. Yeah. But it's explored here. So there is this arc for Poe. He acknowledges that he has to make things right. Um, I think he even says, which actually reminds me of Finn at the end of The Last Jedi, that um he'll die trying to make things right he's that he's that desperate to make amends with the resistance yeah shows he's carrying a really heavy burden from it basically yeah he says we've all made choices choices that caused harm led to destruction even at times death we are all responsible for our deeds great and the terrible but if we define ourselves only by what we've done only by our failures then this resistance the spark it dies here and now Mm. Um, and then in that same scene uh, Zay versus Yo she says a choice to be better she kind of finishes Poe's sentence for him and that is echoing what Luke Skywalker said to her father in Battlefront right uh, before he made the choice to defect from the Empire because he was like oh why are you talking to me I'm, I'm your enemy um, but yeah so that was kind of nice yeah no, it was really well handled and this might not be true and the truth will only be when we actually get the rise of Skywalker but because we did get all this like emotional progression and this arc for Poe in this book that further like said to me that that's safe territory because we're probably not going to get too much in-depth Poe characterization in the rise of Skywalker because Finn and Rey are pretty much unknown quantities in this book and that's obviously because there's going to be lots of stuff going on with those characters in there in the next film Whereas they did get way more into Poe's headspace. And yeah, I just feel like there's probably not going to be as much time for that. What do you think? Yeah, I'm really of the opinion that Poe in The Rise of Skywalker will be about emphasising where Rey and Finn are at in terms of the Resistance and whether they fit in or don't. Yeah. And I I still think Oscar will be great. But yeah, in terms of his own personal arc, I'm not expecting a ton of development there. Yeah. So it's nice to get that through some other means. Mm. There's also some interesting gems that kind of make a little more sense in terms of the merch that we've been we've seen coming out, like this snake symbol. Oh yeah, pick up on that. I've seen that on a few pieces of merchandise, but it's not something that we recognise from the sequel trilogy so far. Um, the snake tattoo symbolising the collective, which is. Um, as they describe in the book, an underground organization of engineers, technicians, and scientists bent on stopping the spread of authoritarianism in all its forms via the use of technology. Right. Yeah, no, I hadn't made that connection. That's really interesting. 
So are we going to see the collective kind of teaming up with the resistance in in episode 9? Um the them talking about the use of technology, like is that related to Babu Frick and what he does with 3PO at all? I don't know, interesting. Yeah, there's a lot to think about. So there's so many opportunities for this stuff to intersect with the rise of Skywalker and yeah, I wouldn't even like to guess. <laughs> Mm. but yeah lots of potential like do you want to talk any more about the passage where poe is asking finn about his love life or um is that best left undiscussed oh we can because i think it i i would be surprised if she was allowed to write that in there if it didn't relate in some way to what we're going to see in the rise of skywalker Mm. yeah it would feel like a very random thing to include (laughs) yeah so it it's it's caused a bit of drama because it's Finn essentially saying that he's friends and not romantic with both Ray and Rose. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's surprising to me in one sense and not in another, basically. Um, right. Because Poe, from his perspective, he doesn't know anything. So he's just asking, like, because he, he butts in on a conversation with Finn and Ray. And then he says, like, are you two? And, and Finn almost reacts in amusement i think he does like they say the word amusement and um says oh no no we're just friends and then uh, is it poe who brings up the fact that he and rose kissed on crate or says and rose like for clarification there and um finn describes it as a moment on crate i'm gonna try and find it let me see okay cool so i found the passage in question which is on page 183 um so poe basically he's come across finn and ray having a private conversation and in reference to the two of them poe says so the two of you aren't dot 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 finn looked puzzled at first but then his expression shifted to amusement no nothing like that just friends and rose oh Finn shook his head no. We talked about it, and Crate was a moment. But that's it. Friends there too. Poe laughed. I can't keep up with your just friends, man. Finn flushed, rubbing self-consciously at his neck. I know, it's been a lot, but never mind all that. Cool. Yeah, so that's basically the quote. And yeah, I really want to know that conversation that Finn and Rose had after Crate. Like, how did that go down? It's like, so... That's the problem for me, that we don't actually see that. And it's kind of downplayed. And it might be Finn downplaying it to Poe because he's not sure about how he feels about things yet. Yes. But describing it as a moment, it's like, uh, she saved his life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Was it just a moment? It's not even just about the fact that they kissed. She actually saved his life. If she hadn't done that, he wouldn't be here having this conversation now. Yeah, it's quite so. significant. <laughs> it's like he's not obligated to be in a relationship with her, obviously. No, of course but not. It's of a certain gravity, basically, that it's odd to talk about it in that way. Yeah, so what I would like to know, and I'm sure the film will answer the question, is if that's Finn, the character, downplaying it, or if it's the author, like, not understanding that. Mm. You know, that it's not just about whether they're romantic now or whatever, it's that Rose did this absolutely pivotal thing yeah um yeah and him describing it as a moment just seems like weirdly trivializing yeah it's like come on man (laughs) yeah 
So I totally get why people were disappointed with that. I'm optimistic that the film will do better. And again, as we said in the earlier discussion, I don't need it to do much. I don't need it to be like a big subplot or anything. Just have at least one scene where we get a sense for where things are between them. And yeah, hopefully some satisfying resolution. Just something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So are there any other things you want to say about Resistance Reborn to wrap this up? I mean, we have lots of notes here and there's so much going on. That's kind of <laughs> one of our issues with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's just, I don't know, it's almost too ambitious, I think. Yeah. And I'm sure, it, I think it's hit the mark for a lot of people. A lot of people are really happy with this book and I did enjoy it. Um, it's just, there's so much. And oh, yeah. It's almost, Yeah to tie in all of that stuff from all of these different stories to bring back Ransom and then not really do anything with him because by the time you get him back it's like the end of the story and he's in this almost delirious state where he can't even you know he can't even vocalize like yes I I want you to free me I want to join the resistance or go back to Leia or whatever like it's he's like wait what (laughs) it's like that could have been anyone yeah exactly he's not recognizable as Gustavo essentially and yeah yeah (laughs) which is disappointing because we love that character so much in bloodline and it's important that leia regains that hope and realizes that he's alive but then it doesn't really go anywhere and it's like that would be great if we saw him in the next movie but uh i don't think we're going to or if he is he'll be like a background character that they can then point to for fans like oh that's ransom but the general audience wouldn't be aware of it yeah exactly my hope that i'll hold out for is that claudia gray gets to write some novel set in that period between last jedi and the rise of skywalker where they actually explore ransom properly Mm. and yeah i think there's lots of potential for that i really want you to read black spire because that is such an interesting continuation of pre-existing characters by the author who introduced them and obviously it's not Claudia, it's um, Delilah S. Dawson in that case. But I think it was really well done with Black Spire. And I, Claudia's obviously great, so she'd also do a great job, I think, with revisiting Ransom. But Yeah, that's yeah. next on my list. I love Vi and Cardinal. Nice. I want to see where their story goes. So Cool. Well, let me know when you've read it, because then we can talk about it. So, yeah, awesome. Okay, cool. So then very quickly, because we're already at the two hour mark and yeah, we don't want to run on too much longer. Just kind of a very quick review of the latest episode of Star Wars Resistance, which is called From Beneath. So what's your quick snappy review of From Beneath, Kirsty? Um, I enjoyed it. It was mm-hmm. very cute to see Flix with his family. Um, yes. You know, cool to see dragons. I love the dynamic they were going for with Flix kind of like, leaving the family business and the home and then coming back to it and kind of being ribbed and then being skeptical of things that he actually did quite believe in and then it turned out that he was right um i felt like that was almost relatable to a lot of us of like going home and checking in with family and stuff like that yeah um so in and of itself totally cool entertaining episode um, it does make me a little anxious about pacing of the story overall because mm. it was one of those what you'd call filler episodes 
perfectly harmless, but like not big picture stuff for the state of the resistance. Yes. Um, again, we didn't see Tam. I think this is the first ep- third episode in a row. Um, and it, it does make me a little concerned because we only have this season and somehow they need to wrap up Tam's arc in a way that feels super satisfying and justifies the choices that she's made mm. uh, because that's what that character deserves. And, um, you know, they know what they're doing. I'm trusting them. But I don't think that this was intended to be the last season of this show. And it makes me wonder if this episode would have been in there if they knew that they'd had to wrap up things a little quicker than they initially planned. Yeah. Because, yeah, three episodes without Tam, she is so important to the show. Maybe they're, well, presumably, they're gearing up to something big for this character. But I'm just so impatient at this point. And again, maybe that's intentional. But it's a little frustrating. Yeah, that was basically my main response to this as well. It was enjoyable enough and I liked it while I was watching it. But it has no ramifications for the bigger story. And yeah, like the best part in the episode itself was um, Flix having like supportive family members and loving that relationship with Walker. Like, I really like this dialogue. I can see why Flix likes that guy. He takes charge. He's a good find. So, yeah, having yeah. a direct reference to their relationship is fantastic. Yeah, I um, really appreciate that because so often, like, gay couples, it's like, oh, they're gay, but that's only, like, actually indicated in an interview separate from the movie or TV show. And that always seems like half ass in it. Whereas in this one, it's like, no, they're a couple. It's, it's a thing. And they're a really cute couple. Yeah, so I don't want to diminish the importance of that. This episode in and of itself was, you know, a great episode but just overall it's like okay where are things gonna go there are so many characters that are specific to this show that you don't see anywhere else they're not in the movies so they all have development and arcs that are go- ongoing how are they gonna do them all justice yeah uh, i don't know I, they'll probably pull it off it'll be fine but that's just kind of where i'm at now yeah and I think we're just suffering from TAM withdrawal symptoms at the moment. We just haven't had our fix of TAM and mm-hmm. we're feeling it. We're suffering a bit. So, yeah, we love yeah. her. I keep on hoping for next week, but I'm not going to... I'm trying not to go into the next episode of that thought in my mind, you know, so I want to enjoy it on its own terms rather yeah, than just exactly. be thinking, where's TAM? Where's TAM? Where's TAM? <laughs> <laughs> Which is it's not helpful. It's not to at this point, yeah. Yeah, I do miss her. So, yeah, that's the review. Bring back TAM. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah well that's not too bad to be honest i thought we would go on for longer than that given the quantity of stuff we had to discuss we could have obviously said way more but i feel like that's a perfectly reasonable length for a podcast there's so much and you know to be fair we'll probably come back to resistance reborn once we have the movie yeah because there might be things that make more sense things that fit in and then like maybe rebecca knew things were going to be referenced in that movie that we can't anticipate yet Mm-hmm. so it'll be kind of interesting to see that in hindsight yep no 100 percent. but yeah it's really exciting to have this much new narrative styles content to discuss like i'm really excited to discuss the mandalorian each week with you now kirsty so me it's pretty too because awesome. last time in the lead up to the last jedi obviously you get a ton of content to discuss on the press tour itself like there's a real hype around it but it's kind of nice to have an actual star wars story being told in the meantime oh yeah 100%. So it won't, it won't just be interviews and that that we're discussing because they can only say so much. There's going to be a lot of fluff. Yeah, no, exactly. So that, that's why you kind of have to be like pretty 
brutal at this point in the process it's like we accept we cannot cover everything amen (laughs) at least they've moved away from saying it's satisfying oh god yeah that was bad (laughs) it's like it's so satisfying Mm. it's like to whom to whom (laughs) what do you mean yeah i think they're starting to be a bit more honest about the fact that they can't please everyone (laughs) yeah which i'm really grateful for it's like please guys like don't set the trolls up even more than they're already set up for so yeah i mean maybe if people love mandalorian that'll also kind of soften the blow if they don't get absolutely everything they want from that last movie there's something else in star wars right now to focus on yeah i think that's gonna be the effect and i think that's a good thing because yeah there's stars out there for everyone right now and i feel like mandalorian has been really well received which Mm -hmm. has been very nice to see so yeah Yeah, it's all good okay cool so let's round things off there i'm rachel and you can find me on stars nonsense on tumblr I'm Kirsty, and you can find me at Bastilla Bay on Tumblr. And you can find us both on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye! And happy life day!